0: Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosin.
1: Whoa, what a build up. What a build up. I hope I can only live up to it. Welcome in. It's great to have you with us. I'm going to be talking with Chris Danielson from the National Federation of the Blind at length shortly. And we'll be talking about a number of things. There are some developments to report with respect to this ongoing discussion. ...that they're having in the United States about dogs on airlines. Delta started this ball rolling, and as was inevitable, other airlines would respond in kind. United has done something similar, but they have taken into account the respect with which guide dogs are generally held. So we'll talk with Chris Danielson about that. We'll also talk about some legislation that is bubbling away that may be coming up for a vote in the House very shortly... You may want to be, if you're in the United States, on the alert for this. This is the ADA Education and Reform Act. Chris will explain what's in this act and why the National Federation of the Blind has some concerns about that. And uh, there was some lobbying on this at their recent Washington seminar, which we'd also talk about. Towards the end of the interview, I'll also talk about the disillusionment people seem to feel these days in many instances about whether or not they can affect change. And as a lifelong advocate who has been fortunate enough to have seen efforts that I've put my mind and heart to really change lives and outcomes in society. It saddens me that I meet an increasing number of people who think that no matter what they do, nothing will change. And I don't think that that is true. Before we get to all that, though, I do have an important administrative announcement to make about the Blindside podcast. We did move the Blindside. There was a period there where the provider that we used to be hosted with, SoundCloud, was in serious danger of going belly up. And a number of us at that point decided that the prudent thing to do was to move our podcast. And I moved the podcast last year, in the latter part of last year, to a new provider. And it has served us well, but we are making another move. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because I didn't tell you last time and a couple of people had some issues where maybe the podcast stopped being updated and you thought, "Whoa, Mosin's got lazy. He's not updating the podcast anymore. And in fact, what happens when you move a podcast if you do everything right? And and I do do my best to, to get all these things right in the old RSS feed, the old podcast feed. You can add a redirect thing. It's kind of like forwarding your calls somewhere else, right? And when you add this redirect function to your old podcast feed, what is supposed to happen is that your podcast app, whatever you're using, will say, oh, OK, you're, they're forwarding it somewhere else, and we'll now get the podcast episodes from this new place, and it's all automatic. And for a good, I don't know, 80 odd percent of you, that worked just fine. For a few people, it didn't work at all. And so you thought the podcast episodes had dried up. And for an even smaller number of people, just maybe a handful, what happened was that their podcast app got very excited and started downloading all the episodes again, which is not what I want for you. So I just want to warn you, we're not going to make a habit of um, moving the podcast willy nilly all over the place. And I've given this considerable thought. And the reason why I'm moving the podcast is because it's here to stay. And I've done a lot of research and the new host that we're moving the podcast to. And if you are a fellow podcaster and you want to know where we're going, we are going to Libsyn. Or rather, I'm going back to Libsyn because when I started my very first podcast in 2004, hard to believe I've been doing this podcasting Malaki for 14 years when I started in, in 2004, I was using Libsyn. So going back to Libsyn. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I'm going to be able to, thanks to Libsyn, get the podcast to you in more exciting places. And I'll have more to say about the much wider availability of the Blindside in future episodes of the podcast as we roll that out. I resisted moving to Libsyn because they're a little bit more expensive. They have some arbitrary limits about how much data you can Upload a month, depending on how much you pay. But I have come to the conclusion that they suit the needs of The Blind Side better than our current host. And so we're going to take the plunge. So if by the end of next week, you don't get another episode of The Blind Side, then I would suggest if you've got a podcast app, uh, you go to The Blind Side page on the Mosin Consulting site and get the new feed URL from there. For most of you, this update is going to be automatic, it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be seamless, and there's nothing that you need to do. But if you find that you're not getting podcasts in another week or so, and you want to enter the feed manually into your podcast app of choice, then the feed is the slash RSS. Simple as that. the slash RSS. And Libson is spelled L-I-B. S-Y-N, short for Liberated Syndication, theblindside.libsyn.com slash RSS. We'll do our best to make this all seamless, and we'll see you on the other side. It's going to be a beautiful thing, I promise.
0: It's time to hear from
1: this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. A couple of weeks ago on The Blind Side, we talked about Delta Airlines' policy to require Service dog users to submit paperwork at least 48 hours before getting on an airline, and that makes it difficult for people who need to take travel for business that's spontaneous or bereavement-related travel where there's some sort of family emergency. It is discriminatory, and many people are opposed to it. It was inevitable that other airlines would follow suit, but it seems that United is trying at least to accommodate guide dogs in their attempt to crack down on people really using a loophole in the Air Carrier Access Act to take all manner of animals on board, the latest example of which is an emotional support peacock, according to United. So let's get the National Federation of the Blind's take on this. And I'm joined by Chris Danielson, who is in Baltimore. Welcome, Chris. Good to have you back on The Blind Side.
0: Good to be back, Jonathan. Thanks again for having me.
1: So what is to be done then about the situation where there has been resistance in the United States to certifying service animals, but now we have all manner of untrained, unruly animals causing havoc on aircraft and the airlines are fighting back? It's a difficult situation.
0: Right. Well, so there's a couple of things going on here. Um, first of all, it's always been it's always been a contentious issue of who should certify guide dogs and guide dog schools and all of that and that's that's kind of in the background and now there's this new category which which we don't you know we don't really take a position on uh and undoubtedly some people have or maybe many people have legitimate need for it but there's this relatively new category of emotional support animals and the problem is that all kinds of things are uh being claimed to be emotional support animals including fairly exotic uh animals that aren't even normally domesticated or they may be domesticated but they're they're considered uh they're considered to be pretty uh uh, exotic, you know, you're talking about things like possums, and uh, you mentioned the uh, the peacock. Uh, there have been other uh, other <laughs> other kinds of fowl involved, and and just it, it, it's it's um, kind of gotten to be a um, a little bit of a problem because. You've got animals that normally don't go on to airplanes in any capacity coming on to airplanes. And the airlines have decided finally, and and apparently it's it's fairly easy. I haven't tried this, but apparently it's fairly easy uh, whether you need the animal for emotional support or not to get documentation or a vest that says that the animal is an emotional support animal. Um, there isn't a whole lot of rigor in that process apparently. Uh, and so for example, you had a, a reporter for NBC, one of our major news networks here in the United States uh, take a uh, you know just decide he was going to take a pig on a plane and get a uh, some kind of documentation certifying it and some kind of vest or harness for it to wear and actually taking it uh, on a plane uh, so, Um, and, And this was not a guy who, as far as we know, had any need for any kind of special support. So that's what's happening, apparently.
1: You say that NFB doesn't take a position on emotional support animals. And I guess my question to you is, why on earth not? I mean, the NFB is not an organization that is shy of a confrontation when it genuinely believes that it's necessary. It seems to me... That allowing this concept of emotional support, animals of all kinds to run for so long unchallenged, has really been very detrimental to blind people. And I, I don't understand why. And it's not just the Federation. It's like blindness organizations, including guide dog advocacy organizations, seem to have let blind people down through their silence on this.
0: I, I understand that point of view, but another way of looking at it is we don't want to get out of our lane as the National Federation of the Blind. We know what blind people need uh, and don't need, uh, but we don't know what other people need. And so once we start saying that. Uh, you know, these all of these other animals are are illegitimate and should not be allowed on airplanes or in public places, for example. We're making a judgment about what other people need, uh, what people who are who are not blind, but who may have uh, other legitimate needs. And uh, while it is definitely causing us problems, Uh, arguably causing us problems, it's it's not a situation where we are qualified to say uh, what is a legitimate uh, emotional support need and what is not. Uh, There are legitimate emotional support animals. Uh, We were recently involved with with an event that involved Vietnam veterans. And uh, one gentleman had a dog, admittedly a fairly standard type of animal to have. Uh, because he had post-traumatic stress disorder um, and and had been dealing with that since his time in Vietnam. And so we don't want to, I guess it's possible that there may come a time when we have to, but we don't want to start playing the game uh, of talking about people who are not blind and saying what, they, what their needs are and what they aren't. Um, There may be other people who need to speak out about that, but I think we would relatively quickly be attacked for not being qualified to answer that question.
1: Okay, I understand that position. What to be done then? Is there a need perhaps for some sort of cross-disability summit along with the airline industry where there might be some sort of agreement on a certification process, because of course, then you've got the other extreme from that, which the United States is experiencing at the moment, where you had a very draconian certification process suggested in Canada. So that's the exact opposite of what you guys have got.
0: Right. Well, and and the interesting thing is that something was attempted. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, uh, there was an attempt uh, at at what was called a negotiated rulemaking, which is that instead of going through the normal regulatory process uh, where an agency of the United States government proposes a regulation and then uh, people have 60 or 90 days to comment on it and then they uh, maybe revise the regulation or maybe don't and put it out, they actually do try to get the stakeholders together and and sit down and say, okay, what should the rules be? And the issue of guide dogs and service animals and emotional support animals did come up. And oddly enough, that was the one thing that everybody in this cross-disability group could not agree on. Uh, We got uh, a negotiated uh, regulation on in-flight entertainment. Uh, and we got one and another issue that isn't coming to my mind right now, but the issue of service animals and emotional support animals uh, did not get resolved. So uh, I don't know. I, I mean, that doesn't mean that it's that it's probably wouldn't be a good idea to try to take another bite at that apple, but it's but it has been attempted, and so far, no consensus has been reached.
1: Now, United has jumped on board, if you'll pardon the pun, and they have a policy that is a little different from Delta. I note the NFB's press release commending United for its policy. What are they doing and, and why is it better than what Delta is doing?
0: Well, what United is doing, you know, again, purely from the perspective of, of blind Americans who you know who are the only people that we claim to represent. Uh, What United is doing is better simply because it it does impose the notice requirement on people claiming uh, to have emotional support animals but it does not impose any new notice or certification requirement on uh, people who use guide dogs or the phrase united uses is actually trained service animals i believe so guide dogs will not be affected by um by the new policy De- uh, delta has gone uh to the extreme and said look if you're gonna in our view at least and said look if you're gonna bring any animal uh onto a plane uh no matter what it is, you are going to have to provide this documentation uh, 48 hours in advance. And as you say, that that really works a hardship on, on um, people who need to travel for business or need to travel in emergencies. I can even imagine a situation where you uh, become stranded in an airport and the airline that you booked with uh, is unable to accommodate you uh, to get you back to to your home or to the destination you're trying to get to you need to uh, switch to a delta flight in order to get to that location and you literally can't because you have a guide dog and Delta will not accommodate you because it doesn't have this forty eight hour notice now uh, Delta has said to some uh journalists that have talked to it well obviously will exercise some situational flexibility uh but you know airport personnel in my uh, experience and probably in yours aren't really good at flexibility um they tend to want to have a rule that they can follow and um and of course and unless you Unless Delta lays out the exceptions that it's going to make, which which so far it hasn't, uh, you know, it's it's going to be hard to get. You're going to have, at the very least, uh, very inconsistent treatment of blind people flying with guide dogs.
1: United are taking blind people on trust to some extent without certification, though, aren't they? I mean, what's to stop me from turning up to the airport with my pet dog Rover? And because I'm clearly blind, I'm just going to be able to take that dog on board. I mean, that, what, is right. United requiring some sort of proof that the dog is certified? Apparently, it, it, it is not. Just blindness is sufficient to let right. you on the plane with an animal.
0: Well, what's always been the standard in the past, to the extent there's been a standard at all, is the behavior of the animal. Um, There are rules about what an airline can do uh, about a a guide dog or a service animal, any kind of service animal or emotional support animal that has to do with uh, how the animal behaves. So if the animal is obeying commands and it's, uh, you know, there are requirements in the Air Carrier Access Act that says it has to, uh, you know, it has to be able to uh, sit down or crouch down on the floor under the seats. It can't protrude into the aisle. Um, and, And obviously, if it begins to bite anybody, if it, you know, uh, make a mess on the plane. Those have always been grounds for an airline to, uh, deny passage. And of course there are limits to that. It doesn't do you any good if that stuff happens once the plane has left the ground. Uh, but there, there's always been some latitude for airlines to act when, when a, um, when a an animal isn't behaving properly and and to a certain extent i was talking with a friend of mine about this uh recently and and he was agreeing with me that um i don't know how paperwork helps that you could have all the paperwork in the world about your animal and yet if you haven't maintained its training well um or or there's some you know defect in the animal itself that somehow didn't get picked up in the in the very rigorous process that, that guide dog uh, training centers usually put those animals through, um, then you're going to have a problem anyway. And no amount of paperwork is going to tell you that. Um, so I'm not sure what the answer is. Uh, but we do have a situation where guide dogs have been around for decades, at least in the United States. I mean, I, I think the the first we started to see the first guide dogs in the 1930s uh, in the United States, and so this is not a, a, a unlike emotional support animals. Arguably, this is not a new category, and it's pretty well understood what guide dogs do uh, and how they're supposed to behave. And that's kind of the point we were making in in, with respect to our contrast of the way Delta and United is are are handling these things. You know, our fundamental thing is don't um, don't penalize the people who are not causing the problem. If you've got a problem, uh, then you need to find a way to identify where that problem is and crack down on it. But you don't just make a blanket judgment and, you know, I'm not aware and Delta isn't specific about this, but I'm not aware of any of the incidents that it's talking about actually involving guide dogs that belong to blind people.
1: Yeah, I mean, whatever the animal, if you're on a coast-to-coast flight with an animal that is misbehaving, it's a really long trip, isn't it? You know, and you're stuck in that aircraft. As you say, it's a bit difficult to throw them off at that point once takeoff has occurred.
0: Right, right, exactly. I mean, that's that's the one thing you can't do. Mm. <laughs> um, nor can you but, – but, I mean, how far are you going to take that? You can't throw off a misbehaving child either.
1: No, no uh, that's true. If they're, yeah.
0: You know, so, I, I mean uh, – you know, look, flying is inherently a a an interesting proposition, particularly nowadays. And there's there are a lot of different things that can happen once a plane is in the air that can make the flight unpleasant for everybody. And all you can do is do the best you can. Um, and we're not saying that there aren't things that need to be done. But it does seem like to make a blanket judgment, particularly when when blind people have been using guide dogs for for years and when there's, you know, there's not an official national certification, but there's a pretty well understood uh, system in the United States for for training guide dogs. And and there's pretty, pretty well understood what they are. Um, The airlines are allowed to ask. If you bring any animal, they are allowed to ask you. Uh, they're not allowed to ask you about your disability, but uh, they are allowed to ask you what it's trained to do. Uh, and uh, so, all of those things are. And, and you know, w- with guide dogs, you know, with emotional support animals, you're kind of dealing with a situation where it's literally just emotional support, and they may or may not be. Um, trained to do a specific task. With guide dogs they are trained to do specific tasks of course and when a blind person is asked about them they can say what those tasks are and demonstrate them if necessary.
1: The guide dog industry internationally is pretty much self-policing because they have the International Guide Dog Federation and there is this process that occurs, I think, every couple of years where somebody from a different school in a different country comes and does the the evaluation and that determines whether that particular school is accredited with the brand, if you like, of the International Guide Dog Federation. So there's, there's been self-policing all along. Do you think that that means then that certification – of guide dogs is not necessary because this is something that I think it's one of those cultural differences like healthcare and and guns that people outside of the United States have difficulty coming to terms with. Here, for example, we have an organization that is in legislation authorized to certify guide dogs. That doesn't mean that every guide dog has to come from that organization. In fact, if you train your own dog, that organization is required to evaluate and ultimately certify. And there's a medallion that goes on the guide dog's collar and that gives people some reassurance that this is a fully trained guide dog. What's actually so bad about that approach if you have an independent organization that can at least say certify the organizations in the in the United States that would certify the dogs.
0: Um, you know that's an interesting question, and I'm not uh, not trying to be evasive, but uh, I'm not going to get out over my skis and and answer it. And in fact, I will say to you that as I as I participate in this interview, I wonder if it might have been even better for you to interview our, uh, the president of our national association of guide dog users, because, uh, he may actually have some thoughts about that. Um, I suppose that everything should be kept on the table. Uh, but I don't want to, uh, obligate the, the federation and, and obviously in a, in our, Deliberations about anything like that, and whether we would endorse such a thing, uh, we would probably take the lead from our guide dog division. And so, without uh, without that discussion, I don't want to uh, I don't want to debate the pros and cons of uh, certification. I do understand that it is something that is that is done in. In other countries and internationally, and you know, as as problems arise, sometimes you do have to think about uh, different solutions. But I don't want to. I don't want to go any further than that,
1: right? I, I and I, I appreciate that. I guess I just throw in there that if blind people were able to lead the way with this. Then it may require, if there is such a thing as an emotional support animal industry, and it sounds like there may not be. I mean, it sounds like that you can just pick any animal that you feel provides you with emotional support right now and, 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 uh, claim that you're allowed to put that thing on the plane. It might provide some leadership. But it's interesting that we can have a look at what Delta has done, which universally people are unhappy with. What remedies does the Federation have in that regard? I take it that there is a view that what Delta is doing may not be lawful under the Air Carrier Access Act. Is that where this is going?
0: Well, that is certainly what we have said and the point of view that we've taken with Delta. Uh, Obviously, they feel differently about it or they would not have done it. Or there's some speculation that uh, maybe they did it because, look, there is a, there is a genuine need uh, here probably for somebody to make some rules. Uh, technically, in the United States, it would be the Department of Transportation that would be in charge of making them. And I think what's happening with the airlines is they're saying, look, if you're not going to do something, then we're going to do something and uh and and let the chips fall where they may. Uh so that's kind of what's happening. Um we haven't I'm not we we could uh we could discuss what could be done. I'm not sure what actions are available under the air carrier access act, but right now we've actually had one meeting with Delta and while their policy has not Yet changed, we're still talking with them. So I don't want to I don't want to get ahead of ourselves and talk about what remedies we might pursue. I know that the American Council of the Blind has suggested that in the in the meantime, uh, consumers file individual complaints, which they can do under the current Air Air Carrier Access Act. Uh, so I don't know what effect, if any, that will have, and my understanding is there's not a private right of of action, uh, a right to sue for individuals uh, under the Air Carrier Access Act, so I don't even know exactly what any kind of, of recourse would look like, uh, but obviously if we, obviously we'll See where we get in with negotiation and goodwill. And if we can't get what we want to be, we'll then figure out uh, what to do next.
1: Now, the... NFB has just had its uh, Washington Seminar, which is an advocacy event. People get together to discuss advocacy issues, and then lots of uh, blind people are tapping their canes and taking their dogs to Capitol Hill and advocating for outcomes that they believe to be important. It sort of segues us nicely into one of the issues that was the focus of the Washington Seminar in a way, because there is this view that all this disability rights stuff has gone a bit too far and that accommodations have become onerous or ridiculous. And there is some pretty important legislation which is coming up for a vote next week. Can you clue us in on what's happening there and what action, if any, you would like blind Americans to take ahead of that vote?
0: Well, uh, if the vote happens, and we don't know for sure that it's going to, but um, so – let me back up a little bit and say, so our Americans with Disabilities Act uh, in the United States, that's our main piece of legislation, that and the Rehabilitation Act that governs what, what rights uh, people with disabilities have and what businesses and other public accommodations need to do to uh, respect those rights. The only enforcement mechanism that is in that law is a, a private right of action. In other words, an aggrieved a, a, a blind person or person with a disability actually filing suit uh, against, the, uh, against the malefactor. Uh, now, what has apparently been happening, and we don't know how widespread the problem is, we're, we're not going to say that we're, it doesn't happen at all, uh, we think the extent to which it is claimed to may be exaggerated, but what is happening and what this new legislation would try to solve is the idea of a drive-by lawsuit, because there's kind of a, uh, or there's perceived to be kind of a loophole in the ADA where you don't actually to have to have visited the business and tried to get access in order to file a suit so you can observe as uh, as an attorney uh, that a place may have such a violation you can then uh, you know find yourself a plaintiff in whose name you can bring suit you bring the suit and you may, as an attorney, not really be an, a, a disability rights advocate. You may be just uh, trying to make a quick buck. Now, one of the reasons we're not sure how much that actually happens is you can't actually get damages under the ADA. You can get attorney's fees, but you can't get economic or or non-economic damages for a violation. Uh the, the idea is that you sue under the ADA and the violation gets remedied, and maybe you get attorney's fees for all the time that you had to spend, uh, all the money that you had to spend on your attorney to go to court uh, to prove the violation. Um, so the idea that there's a lot of bucks to be made in, in ADA litigation is questionable. Uh, but uh, apparently it Apparently, that well, there definitely are instances where one law firm has filed uh, several uh, very similar lawsuits against a certain kind of business in a particular place, uh, alleging a specific uh, ADA violation. And businesses are are very frustrated by this. Sometimes it appears there hasn't been a whole lot of. A whole lot of investigation uh, into whether the a particular business actually does have a violation. One of the proponents of this bill tells a story that um, a hotel received a uh, an, uh, a lawsuit. Uh, the lawsuit said that the hotel's lift to get into the swimming pool, if you're in a wheelchair, uh, wasn't operating. The the hotel no longer had a swimming pool Um, so uh, or the swimming pool was was actually closed uh, for the season and covered up. So it wouldn't have needed to have a lift in operation uh, while that was the case. Um, So you got that. That's what's alleged to be going on. Now, what has happened is that uh, some folks in Congress have proposed a law that says, okay, if you're gonna sue a business for a a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act, you need to send them a detailed letter uh, and you need to give them then 60 days to respond to the letter and then up to six months to remedy the violation uh, before you can file suit. And that's something that sounds reasonable to a lot of people. But our biggest concern with it is that basically the the new proposed law, which is called the ADA Education and Reform Act, uh, says, okay after this six months, um, if the entity has made substantial progress in remedying the Violation or the barrier, uh, you still can't sue them. And that introduces a new standard that isn't well defined by this new legislation. And what we wonder is okay, so if they make substantial progress, uh, whatever that means, can they then just stop and in effect hold your lawsuit in abeyance forever, uh, or at least until somebody else complains? and never actually comply with the law. Um, the other thing is that the ADA is supposed to, right, it's it's supposed to, although it's not self-enforcing, it is, something, it is a, a law that businesses are supposed to proactively comply with. Uh, and it's been around since 1990, it's almost 30 years old now. It's not a brand new law that people don't know about anymore. Uh, and there are, you know, pretty clear regulations as well as a system in place to help businesses comply. Uh, so it's not as if it's not as if there's no uh, there's no existing notice. And it seems to us that with this new piece of legislation, what it's essentially saying is you need not comply. Uh, with the ADA at all, unless somebody actually hires a lawyer and writes you a letter. And you would need to hire a lawyer to write the letter that they want because it has to be uh, sufficiently detailed, including the specific parts of the law and regulations that it's violated, that a layperson wouldn't necessarily be able to do it.
1: Does the legislation specify who determines whether there has been even some substantial compliance? uh no so if the person who if the entity who's been complained about determines that there has been substantial uh, compliance that may be sufficient
0: (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it it, uh it you know um i'm not aware that any definition is given to to how how substantial compliance is supposed to be determined so you know uh you know Does a business get to say we've built three quarters of a ramp? It doesn't go all the way up to the door, but we've uh, we've substantially uh, we've made substantial progress. I have to be careful because I always forget it's not substantial compliance. It's substantial progress. Uh, So you got three fourths of a ramp, but it doesn't quite reach the door of your building. Well, you can argue that's substantial progress. Uh, You you have more of a ramp than you did before you have three quarters of one but it's still not going to do a wheelchair a person in a wheelchair any good so
1: (laughs) right and in a blindness context i suppose if you were seeking to have an app or a website made accessible and perhaps a a couple of screens or a couple of pages were made accessible but you still say maybe the purpose of that app is to is is to book a hotel for example to book accommodation Mm -hmm. if you can't complete that it's pretty much irrelevant, right? I mean, the, the the task that you seek to do and that other people can do uh, is not something that you can still complete.
0: Right, right. Um, so, I mean, this is introducing a whole. Um, I'm not going to impugn the intentions of the people that uh, that are that are proposing this, but it, it just doesn't seem to be very well thought through in terms of okay, how are you going to? Uh, how are you ever going to get to compliance uh, if if you can if you can play this game? Uh, and, you know, what's more likely to happen is the the business and the and the person who's bringing the complaint will get into an argument about whether the business is, are, is complied. And from some businesses perspective, I guess the hope is, well, maybe this irritating person. Who has who has filed the you know who who has brought the complaint will just go away out of frustration um it, it, you know it's not anything that we want to see uh passed into law and if this vote goes forward next week we will be asking our members to let their uh representatives in the House of Representatives know um that this is not something that, That should be passed uh, as it currently is.
1: It sounds like that it represents potentially a very significant gutting of the power, the clout of the ADA.
0: Well, it does. I mean, as I said, the ADA has no mechanism of enforcement other than lawsuits. That now the Department of Justice, uh, the United States Department of Justice, sometimes does file. Disability lawsuits itself, uh, but there's still lawsuits. the The ADA doesn't have any other enforcement mechanism at all, um, and so if you if you make that enforcement mechanism essentially neutralize it, essentially make it not a real threat, uh, or or make it difficult, if not impossible, to bring an effective piece of litigation. Then you are, in fact, gutting the Americans with Disabilities Act, and that's what's frustrating about this. Because the proponents of this, and and maybe they think they mean it, uh, but they say, no, we're we're trying to fix the ADA, we're trying to keep it from being abused. Um, but the reality is, the way they're doing it is going to render the the real enforcement power of the ADA, pretty much meaningless. Um, And it'll just become one of these laws that, well, this is a really good thing to do, uh, but nobody can actually enforce it. So it's not going to happen.
1: Do you have a sense at this point for the mood of Congress with respect to this legislation? Is it likely to pass if it comes to a vote?
0: Well, unfortunately, the, the bill does have Uh, over 100 co-sponsors in the House. Um, Now, there are 435 members of the House of Representatives. You need 218 of them to vote for something for it to pass. Um, We don't know uh, for sure that it could get to that number, but it does have a lot of momentum in terms of co-sponsorship.
1: And in the Senate, that might be a closer thing, right?
0: yeah in the senate it would definitely be closer um it's not uh necessarily true i i it's not necessarily true there are democrats signed into the onto this thing and i don't know how many how many of its supporters are republicans and how many are democrats at this time um in the senate it might be a near a, a near thing and and so far there there is a a uh i believe a similar bill i don't know if it's if it's exactly the same or if it's close or if it does something completely different um in the senate but uh, i haven't heard that the momentum in the senate is the same so this could very well pass the house never uh pass the senate and not become a threat um On the other hand, uh, it could pass the House and uh, the Senate could decide to take it up and it could pass and then it uh, and then it could become law. We don't really we don't really know. We suspect it may have more trouble in the Senate, uh, but we'd rather it not pass the House because that's obviously uh, the best
1: outcome. And when you sent the troops out to uh, meet with members of Congress about this, were they receptive uh, to the argument, or do you think people's minds are pretty much made up by the way on this at this point?
0: Well, I, we've been hearing that people were receptive to the argument, and, and certainly some of uh, some of our traditional allies in the Congress have expressed concerns. Uh, so we're hoping, uh, you know. This is kind of coming fast on the heels of Washington seminar, and uh, we haven't had time to do a whole lot of follow up. But we're hoping that we've managed to to shift the momentum a little bit um, or at least make uh, members less likely to say to be really gung ho about this. Um, But we'll have to see.
1: And this is one of those issues where I'm sure there's very wide cross disability support for campaigning against the passage of this legislation
0: i I don't know of any organization of people with disabilities that that supports this thing i, I don't you know i the cross disability movement is pretty much uh opposed to it having having said that uh, you know there's been a certain amount of uh of, I think fatalism—that uh, something like this is going to pass. Uh, granted, this is, you know this isn't the first time that this issue has come up over the years, but it is the time when uh, this movement to uh, curtail the ADA has gained the most momentum. Um, so, so the National Federation of the Blind has has kind of been encouraging people. Uh, to continue to fight about this, uh, and and uh, we do believe that a lot of the cross disability movement has has now been galvanized to that. But I think the re- part of the reason that this got the momentum that it did is initially there was a lot of a lot of fatalism uh, and a lot of uh, sort of saying, "Well, let's let's minimize the damage instead of." Uh, let's really try to kill this thing.
1: It is something I notice that there does appear to be this fatalism creeping in. I mean, if you look at advocacy victories of of past decades, which people benefit from every day, they were done because there are certain bottom lines that you don't go beyond. And you just fight your corner and you state your case and you believe you have a powerful case. And it seems that increasingly people get a bit disillusioned and they think, you know, no matter what I do, I can't make a difference, and I think that's one of the important roles of advocacy organisations, isn't it, to encourage people to realise that actually they can effect quite significant change if they're tenacious.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, I think there there always need to be uh, there always need to be uh, advocacy organisations who will say, you know, if if we're if we act together and if we really, uh, really push the envelope, uh, we can uh, we can make a difference. Now that doesn't mean you're going to win uh, every battle, um, but it does mean that you you have to make the effort. Um, and you know our mentality in the National Federation of the Blind, and 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 it, it you know it's it. Some people don't like it. It gets us into trouble with other people. But our mentality is to fight. Now, we don't we, we don't want to fight when we don't have to. Um, and, and you know, that's something that, that other people may not realize about us. But uh, but we're going to fight. Uh, and uh, if we need to and we're going to keep fighting, we're not ever going to say, OK, um, well, gosh, this has happened uh let's move on to something else or or we may do that if the issue is uh, you know we all, all all organizations have to set priorities and you know sometimes you don't want to expend all of your energy uh on on one particular fight when you've got other irons in the fire but um one thing we've traditionally said in the federation is that we lose battles Uh, we sometimes lose battles, but we don't lose wars because the war isn't over until we say it's over. Uh, so, so, and, uh, and some people don't like that about us, but, uh, that's the way that we feel that we have to make a difference. Um, in some circumstances, if this thing passes in, in the house, Uh, We are going to do everything we can to make sure that it doesn't pass in the Senate. If it passes in the Senate, we will try to convince uh, the president not to sign it. Uh, If he does sign it, then when we have the opportunity, we will probably try to make sure that it gets changed or scaled back. Uh, You know, it's it's that's the way we are.
1: Do you feel, does the Federation feel so strongly about this that it could be one of those issues that goes through the court system ultimately to the Supreme Court? Is there any kind of constitutional reason for challenging this? Uh,
0: I'm not aware of a constitutional legal theory uh, at this time. Um, We will certainly uh, pursue any legal avenue that we think might work. Uh, Now, (laughs) and that that's pretty that's a pretty broad statement, uh, because, you know, you if you're going to adopt a strategy, you better make sure it's a winning strategy if you're if you're going to go into court and just get shot down. And one of the problems is once a law gets made. You know, uh, courts are a lot more reluctant in the United States nowadays than they used to be to strike down laws that have actually been passed um, now. But what they may do is is limit their effect. Um, but the struggle we've always had as people with disabilities is it hasn't been clearly established uh, in the United States that the Constitution specifically uh, protects us. Um, it would, you know, we believe it does. It would, uh, it would be great if, but we're not quite the protected class that, uh, that say race, religion, um, and, and some other things are, uh, that are specifically mentioned in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it, I would say, a constitutional argument uh i don't know that i see that but that doesn't mean that we won't try any avenue that's available to us but i would suspect that the thing that we would try to do is is try to reverse it in the legislative process uh however however long that takes.
1: Right. And of course, the disability movement would have to be very careful about its timing to advance any kind of protection case. Very careful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's always the case.
1: You mentioning battles and wars, I guess, requires me to put my own hard hat on, but I don't really care about that. (laughs) But, you know, I, 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 I heard a very interesting story actually that we we put on mushroom fm's daily fiber show where we look at at technology news that comes out on a daily basis and you know the uh, federation passed a resolution at its convention a couple of years ago following a disastrous ios 9 release from apple where some people weren't even able to answer their own phones that's how bad it was in in some cases right and uh, the argument was look we're just as entitled to uh, a phone that works as anyone else who pays their hard-earned money for a phone and that did get some flack at the time and it's something i strongly supported now it wasn't that apple necessarily came to the table then and said you're absolutely right we'll do a better job because there are still ongoing accessibility issues with ios 11 there were some disasters with braille that are only recently remedied but interestingly right phil schiller got into a room. He's a a senior executive with Apple. He recently got into a room with Apple software engineers and he said, folks, we are going to scale back the new feature set in iOS 12 that we had on the roadmap to introduce all these cool new features, including a revamped home screen, all that stuff. We're going to scale it back because iOS is too buggy and we're going to have to spend some time fixing these issues to make the experience more solid for users. Now, The Federation obviously can't take sole credit for that, but the fact that it stood up and told the truth about how buggy that software was and contributed to the discussion, I believe it can be proud of that, and all of the blind people that supported that can be proud of it.
0: You know, thank you for that, Jonathan. Um, You know, you're never going to – I mean, I I, I firmly believe, and this is me – personally talking and i think i'm in an organization that believes it as well that you're never going to get anywhere if you don't uh speak the truth and and the reality is that a couple of years ago we passed a very respectful uh resolution saying to apple you know that this is unacceptable you've done great accessibility work and we appreciate it and gosh, we've given you two or three awards for it. And yes, yeah. blind people are walking around with iPhones all over the place and it's great, but it, that, that means nothing if you're just going to break it when you put out the new operating system and, uh, or it, it means a lot less. You can't, you, you can't get into these situations. And, and as you pointed out, I was surprised that people who took a position against that resolution I was like you know I think you made such a great point in in the article that you wrote for your blog and and then that we used or or maybe you wrote it specifically for us you know saying gosh this would never. Sighted people would never accept not being able to answer their phone.
1: And do you know, Chris, there is something that justifies that uh, right now, because there is another story that we've been running on the Daily Fiber relating to iOS 11 and iPhone 10. And there have been a, a number of reports, scattered reports from people who have said there's a problem where I can't answer my iPhone 10 when it starts to ring, the, the phone doesn't wake up early enough for me to answer the call. And this has become uh, big tech news. A number of tech publications have reported it. Apple has been required to comment on it, and they've promised they're taking it very seriously and that there will be a fix imminent. And you can be sure that there will be an iOS fix to address that iPhone 10 bug really quickly. So if sighted people are entitled to complain about not being able to answer their phone and transact their business why should blind people be expected to settle for less when they pay the same money for their phone
0: Well exactly I mean that's what equal access means if it means every if it means anything at all it has to mean that that what sighted people can expect from their phone we can expect from our phone and when you have issues like uh safari actually being because i remember when safari was unusable in ios 8 uh you know nobody would tolerate their i think it was ios 8 um there nobody would no other user of a smartphone would just say well we need to be patient and give apple a chance if they literally couldn't use the browser on their phone i mean it's it it's a you know we need to you know in the federation we talk about the fact that we raise the expectations of blind people and and one of the things we talk about all the time is look you are not less of a person you are not less entitled than any other person to get what you want and get what you need and this happens to blind people we're told so often oh yes we'll get to you just be patient or oh yes we'll help you find what you need in the store if you'll just wait half an hour until we're less busy um it gets to be a habit to when companies say to us yeah accessibility is important and we'll get to it when, when we we when get to it we just say uh, okay um and it's not acceptable it's not okay Uh, particularly when you're talking about, uh, you know, when you're talking about access to technology that you use every single day, I mean, and, and use in so many ways, it's just not acceptable to say. And so, and so that was the reason, um, for the resolution. And I think Apple is, you know, I had not heard about this particular story, but I noticed, and I've been saying for years, uh, you know, just to people, just to other friends of mine, you know, gosh, I it really seems like uh, as the operating system advances, my phone slows down. And it's almost like Apple is trying to force me to buy a new uh, <laughs> phone. And lo and behold, we've finally gotten to the point uh, where Apple has said, "Well, yes, that's kind of basically what was happening. Not to, not that we'd admit to forcing you to buy a new phone, but we were trying to conserve the battery. And now we'll let you replace the battery for much more, much less money than we would before. So, it, you know, it does it does make a difference when people start to notice these things, and and somebody." I, I forget. Was it a lawsuit about the slowing down thing that 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 made them reveal this? It was well, some.
1: No, I, I think what, what what happened initially, I think, was somebody did some benchmark testing, and they were able to prove right. with undeniable numbers that this was happening. And then it's st- and then I think uh, some some clever people worked it out. So Apple sort of sort of told people, but it was a very nondescript way of telling people exactly what was going on, but. That said, it is important to be even-handed, right? And some people have said, "Well, right. Apple has made some mistakes." There's no doubt about that in most people's mind, I think. But Google continues to be way behind. I mean, their braille support isn't right. adequate. If you were a deaf-blind person trying to use a mobile device from Android, you would really struggle with Google's um, braille support right now, um, despite only having a bit of, about a three-year, maybe two or three-year lag on accessibility Mm -hmm. they really are in many instances more than two or three years behind and yet i don't recall an nfb resolution on the less than adequate uh, screen reader support in android
0: i don't i don't have a you know i can't call one to mind at this moment either but that doesn't mean there hasn't been one and i believe that when this was brought up before uh, somebody was uh, was able to point to one, but it may have been a while. Right. It may have been a while. Um, you know, and, and I don't want to get us into the position where if something's a problem, we have to pass a resolution about it every year uh, until it's not a problem anymore uh, necessarily. But uh, you know, uh, I, I but what I always say to people when they say the NFB has not done this or that, um I ask them, OK, are you a member of the NFB? Uh, then please. And if they say yes, my response is, please write the resolution and submit it to the resolutions committee. Uh, And what I'm not what I'm also not aware of is that any resolution about Google has recently been considered and rejected by the resolutions committee. Uh, So, you know, let's get you know, I I, I would love for anybody listening to this, if they feel this needs to be done to put a resolution out there uh, and, you know, let's have at it.
1: Very good. Well, we've covered a wide range of really interesting topics. And just coming back to the new legislation, I take it that the NFB's social media channels will be the ones to watch. And um, if there's a call to action there, that that's the place that people will find it.
0: Absolutely.
1: All right. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it.
0: All right. Hey, thank you so much, Jonathan. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side. A production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.